0: a serious injury or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by Docketwise, an all in one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like Docketwise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, Docketwise provides a comprehensive group of case management features including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about Docketwise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com/immigration-review. So they know we sent you. And as always, This show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. I've got an excellent week of cases for you. All wins. Still nothing new from the Ninth Circuit though, which has me very worried. Although just so you know that I didn't miss it, the Ninth Circuit very slightly amended its generally non-citizen adverse, some salazar v. Garland decision this week, discussed on episode 94 of the podcast. Minor tweaks, but it does seem that the court replaced some of the harsher language regarding a convention against torture applicants' burden when it comes to establishing that they cannot safely relocate. So I'll take it. Also, this coming week, I'm going to push out a special episode interview with the Hidden Dream Organization, an awesome student-run organization advocating for an oft-forgotten subgroup of young non-citizens in the U.S. termed Visa Dreamers. Watch out for it in your feed. These students bring the knowledge. Case time. Or is it? Actually, before I get to the cases, I want to talk about a book a children's book to be specific. Last week, I was contacted by immigration attorney Rekha Sharma Crawford. She asked if I could mention her new children's book, Aaliyah the Brave, on the podcast, and I said absolutely. I also told her that I'd put links to the book in the show notes, and I did. As Miss Sharma Crawford writes herself, Removal defense attorneys are storytellers, but like all good stories, the only way to connect with the audience is to first understand and connect with the characters. Written by a trial lawyer, Ms. Sharma Crawford, four trial lawyers, Aaliyah the Brave is a resource to help clients with children understand the immigration court process, the hidden trauma that occurs when children are excluded from hard conversations, and the power of a child's voice. Simply put, Ms. Sharma Crawford is doing her best to help both immigration attorneys and their clients become better immigration storytellers. And according to Ms. Sharma Crawford, a portion of the proceeds will be going to the clinic at SCAL, the National Immigration Project, and the National Immigration Litigation Alliance. Aaliyah the Brave, Empowering Children Coping with Immigration Enforcement, is available in English and Spanish on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at rekasharmacrawford.com. And of course, in the Immigration Review Podcast show notes. Thanks again for reaching out, Rekha. First up on the cases, then, is Barros v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on April 19th, 2022. This case is about discretion and exhaustion, but that doesn't quite do the decision justice. I'll try my best to do so. Mr. Barros entered the U.S. as an LPR from Cape Verde at five years old in 1991. He's never left. All of his immediate family are in the U.S. and are either lawful permanent residents or U.S. citizens. Mr. Barris, quote, has a history of depression, anxiety, self-harm, and drug use, end quote. Drug use that he testified was to cope with his depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts. But those drugs were crack and heroin, and beginning in 2003, he began to amass a criminal record. He has a bunch of drug convictions and both arrests and convictions for things like breaking and entering disorderly conduct and assault. A lot of it seems to relate back to his drug addiction, and a lot of the victims, unfortunately, as with many U.S. citizen drug addicts, were his own family members. His last conviction was for possession of crack cocaine. While in rehab and after being sober for 10 months, Ice appeared at his home, where he was living with his parents, and quote, took care of his aging mother, end quote. Ice put him in removal proceedings and placed him in immigration prison. In removal proceedings, Mr. Barrows did what he should have done. He applied for LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 248A. He had held lawful status and LPR status for long enough to qualify for the relief, and none of his convictions were aggravated felonies. So whether he got to stay in the U.S. and keep his green card, a second chance if you will, all came down to the immigration judge's discretion and a balancing of all factors in his life. And the IJ seems to have considered a lot of stuff, including that, quote, Cape Verde, the country to which Mr. Barros would be deported, has a history of human rights abuse and generally poor conditions, end quote. Remember, everyone, country condition evidence is not just for asylum. And most significantly, the IJ believed that Mr. Barros' father would be devastated without his son as the father had just lost his wife, Mr. Barros' mother, to COVID-19. Hardship isn't necessary for this relief, but it's of course relevant as a discretionary factor. The IJ considered the significant bad in Mr. Barrows' life, but held that Mr. Barrows warranted a second chance, and granted LPR cancellation of removal. DHS appealed, and the BIA overturned the IJ, employing its de novo review to hold that Mr. Barros did not warrant relief as a matter of discretion. That is, the BIA decided Mr. Barros's discretionary eligibility in the first instance, as the regulations do require the BIA to do. But while the BIA is indeed tasked with reviewing whether a non-citizen ultimately should be granted discretionary relief, de novo, it cannot disagree with the IJ's factual findings underlying that discretionary determination, unless those factual findings are clearly erroneous. It's a fine line, but that is the whole point of the BIA, and the BIA conflated the standards of review here, so the First Circuit vacated the BIA's decision and remanded. That's right, everyone. This case involves the clear error standard of review, a standard most recently discussed in the First Circuit in Ady Garland, and now quoted again in this case as only being satisfied where, quote, the contested finding stinks like a five-week-old, unrefrigerated dead fish, end quote. The dead fish standard of review is back and, ironically enough, is alive and thriving in the First Circuit. Naturally a podcast favorite. Arguing that the BIA applied de novo review to IJ fact finding when it was supposed to apply clear error review to fact finding is vital because it allows non-citizens to challenge, in a bit of a roundabout way, discretionary agency findings before the circuits, something that non-citizens are usually barred from doing. And quote, just as a petitioner may not cloak her attacks on discretion in question of law garb, the BIA cannot reverse an IJ's findings and cloak it in actions in the euphemistic language of reweighing, end quote. Shakespearean legalese. To quote Buster Rhymes, give me some more. I will. The BIA's biggest sin was that, while the IJ believed the hardship to the father would be extreme, the BIA categorized that hardship and then rejected it as simply, quote, some hardship, end quote, that the father might suffer. But that's not an issue that the BIA can review de novo. Rather, the degree of hardship that the father will suffer, at least in this case where we're not talking about the legal hardship standards under the INA for other forms of relief, is a pure question of fact that the BIA can only disagree with if it smells like a five-week-old dead fish. Or put another way, there is a difference between, quote, whether a fact exists and what weight the fact should garner in the discretionary analysis, end quote. The former is clear error review for the BIA, while the latter is de novo. Case remanded because quote, the BIA's decision makes no attempt to explain why the IJ's predictive findings stink like a five week old, unrefrigerated, dead fish. End quote. At this point I think the first circuit is just egging me on. Congratulations Manuel R. Myers for Petitioner, Giles Bissinete, and Sang Kim of ACLU New Hampshire for Amicus. And also thank you to a seafood city's worth of dead fishes on the win. Shout out to my Kababayan listeners. And I've got more, because some of the other bigger holdings in this case involved the pesky issue of issue exhaustion. So it looks like there's some case law in the First Circuit that, like the Fifth Circuit has held recently, would require a non-citizen to file a motion to reconsider before the BIA, telling the BIA that it messed up and applied the wrong standard of review before a non-citizen can then file a petition for review with the First Circuit looks like oil is making this argument everywhere. But in this case, the First Circuit made clear that its motion to reconsider requirement is limited only to, quote, when the BIA makes findings of disputed issues of fact concerning legal claims that the IJ did not consider in the first instance, end quote. Like, for example, where the BIA denies a case for failure to comply with the ineffective assistance of counsel requirements in matter of lazada, and where the IJ never considered that issue in the first instance, under those type of circumstances, it would appear that the First Circuit would require a motion to reconsider, alerting the BIA that it did something wrong before the First Circuit will consider the issue. But the motion to reconsider requirement does not apply, where the IJ and the BIA are both addressing the same legal issue, here eligibility for LPR cancellation of removal and where the argument is merely, quote, that the BIA applied the wrong legal standard to the facts at issue as found by the IJ, end quote. Which, of course, is almost always what circuit practitioners argue in these type of cases. Big wonky holding, First Circuit warriors. In fact, Oyle told the First Circuit that, quote, it is generally not the Attorney General's position that claims of BIA error must be exhausted in motions to reconsider, end quote that's oil's position. And it's also apparently expressly the positions of at least the second, third, and fourth circuits, at a minimum. Take note, everyone. And finally, to come full circle and return to Busta Rhymes for some more, quote, flash with a rash, give me some cash, flicking my ash, runnin' with my money, son, go out with a blast, end quote. Flip mode for life. And if you haven't watched a late 90s Busta Bust a bus video recently, go do yourself a big favor. And that is barrows v. Garland. Oh, yeah. Next is Matter of Dingus, published by the BIA. Strap in for this one. It's another crimmigration case from the BIA supporting its new line of cases, solidifying Matter of Pickering and Matter of Thomas and Thompson, this time in the context of amended drug convictions. And I do believe that the BIA's decision to hit me with this 12-page single-spaced crimmigration case on a Friday is intentional, even if it's non-citizen-friendly. Prove me wrong. Miss Dingus is from the United Kingdom and became a lawful permanent resident in 2012. In 2017, however, she was convicted of five counts of distribution of a controlled substance under Schedules 1 and 2 of the Virginia Controlled Substance Schedules in violation of Virginia Code Section 18.2-248. While the plea agreement doesn't specify the drug, the indictment charged Oxycodone. Ms. Dingus received a sentence to 20 years in prison. But two years later, quote, a Virginia court issued a nun pro Tunk order correcting the 2017 plea agreement and order of conviction, end quote. We'll get to nun pro Tunk in a bit. The amended conviction reflects that actually, Ms. Dingus was only convicted of, quote, five counts of distribution of a Schedule I controlled substance, namely Salvanorin A, end quote. She was still sentenced to the 20 years, though. But, quote, unlike oxycodone, which is listed in the state indictments and is a controlled substance under the Federal Controlled Substance Act, Salvanorin A. is not federally controlled, end quote. That's a big deal, as many of you probably recognize, and we'll get to it again in a bit. Somehow that I don't understand, Ms. Stingus was not in prison, left the U.S., and sought to re-enter with her green card. When she did, DHS alleged that due to her conviction, DHS could treat her as an applicant for admission under INA Section 11813C, rather than as a returning green card holder, meaning that the INA Section 212 inadmissibility provisions applied, rather than INA Section 237 and the attendant burdens. Complicated issue that we won't address too much in this decision, but which we've addressed in the past. As relevant here, and perhaps recognizing the problem it would have due to the Salvanor and A issue, DHS charged Miss Dingus as inadmissible not for having been convicted of a law relating to a controlled substance, but for having been convicted of a crime involving moral turpitude under INA section 212A2AII. Miss Dingus therefore applied for an INA section 212H waiver of her inadmissibility. This is confusing stuff, so let's just assume for purposes of this decision that if she got the waiver, she'd be permitted to re-enter the U.S. The issue, therefore, is whether Ms. Dingus is eligible for a waiver of her CIMT inadmissibility under INA Section 212H. Barring some exceptions that aren't applicable here, if Ms. Dingus' conviction constitutes a violation of a law relating to a controlled substance, she's ineligible for a Section 212H waiver. Citing to Attorney General Barr's matter of Thomas and Thompson decision, the immigration judge refused to credit the nunc tunk change to the conviction, essentially finding that the record showed that Ms. Dingus distributed oxycodone. The IJ denied the waiver and ordered Ms. Dingus removed to the United Kingdom. I don't know, sounds better than 20 years in U.S. prison to me, but that's just me. Ms. Dingus appealed. As the BIA explained, whether a vacated, modified, changed, amended, what-have-you conviction Has any effect on the original conviction for immigration purposes is very complicated. But let's cut to the chase. In matter of Pickering, the BIA said that it wouldn't give effect to vacated convictions unless the state court vacated that conviction for procedural or substantive defects in the conviction. So, for example, the BIA won't credit a conviction that's vacated if the state did so because the defendant rehabilitated herself and is now a model non citizen, for example. Even though a state in such circumstances would have taken away an individual's conviction, recognizing that the individual had bettered herself and didn't deserve to suffer the consequences of a conviction, the BIA held in matter of Pickering that the individual could still be deported or denied immigration benefits, state law notwithstanding. That's Pickering. After that, the BIA issued a few more decisions implementing different rules if instead of being vacated, the conviction was modified, amended, etc. But in matter of Thomas and Thompson, Attorney General Barr said all of the BIA's decisions were wrong except its really harsh one in Pickering, and so vacated everything on the issue except Pickering. Attorney General Garland has not spoken on the issue. Okay, but here's the thing. Quote, unlike the sentencing modifications in matter of Thomas and Thompson, the nunc pro tonc order in this case does not alter the respondent's sentence. Rather, it amends the subject matter of her conviction, namely the particular controlled substance that she was convicted of distributing in twenty seventeen. And because it's not pro it means that the State Court did it from the onset, that is, from the beginning. The State Court is saying that Ms. Dingus should have been convicted of distributing Salvinorin A, a Schedule I drug in Virginia. As such, the holding in this case is actually quite broad, and it's excellent for non citizens it would appear that for all non proton changes to the substance of a conviction, quote, subject matter modifications change the very nature of the conviction, and therefore are similar to a vacature, end quote, and recognized under matter of Pickering. End quote, like a vacature, the subject matter modification eliminates the guilt of the original conviction. It also convicts the individual of something different, end quote. As such, IJs must consider non quote, subject matter modifications, end quote, or amendments to convictions, and can't consider the original conviction in such cases. non subject matter modifications are substantive defects akin to the type that matter of pickering requires IJs to consider, quote, the original conviction is not valid for immigration purposes, end quote. At the end of the day in Virginia, quote, a court has power to make an entry nun pro tonk in the exercise of its discretion to correct the court's records so that they speak the truth, end quote. Because that's what the BIA held happened here, it gave full effect to the change for purposes of Ms. Dingus's eligibility for immigration relief. With the change, we've got a conviction here for distributing salvinorin A, albeit five times and because that drug is not listed in the CSA the conviction cannot be a violation of a law relating to a controlled substance for immigration purposes i stopped to note that if it had been a schedule 2 drug even if the court didn't know whether it was oxycodone or not the conviction would still match the definition of a controlled substance offense because apparently all drugs listed in schedule 2 of the virginia code are also listed in the federal csa but again it wasn't here it was a schedule 1 drug and more importantly, we know it was Salvin Ornay. That means that Miss Dingus is eligible for an INA Section 212H waiver of her inadmissibility. Why she'd want to come back for her 20-year prison sentence is beyond me, but I'm pretty sure she has her reasons undiscussed in this decision. Case remanded. Congratulations, Benjamin J. Asario, for Miss Dingus. Two more things. So apparently, the IJ also orally amended the notice to appear to reflect the CIMT charge of inadmissibility, which IJs often can't do, at least without a respondent's consent and certainly without permitting the non-citizen an opportunity to plead to the charge. In light of that and the change in drug that the IJ must consider, the BIA also vacated the CIMT inadmissibility finding in the first instance. Interesting stuff. I wonder if there are legs to the argument that distribution of a non-CSA drug like Salvinorin-A is not or cannot be a CIMT. To be fair, the BIA cryptically notes in a parenthetical that the 2018 BIA decision matter of J.M. Acosta may severely undermine the argument, but not entirely. Let me know, counsel. And watch out, Virginia practitioners. A bit unnecessarily, it seems to me, the BIA used this decision as an opportunity to hold that, quote, the identity of the substance distributed is an element of Section 18.2-248, and that the statute is divisible on that basis, end quote. So even though Schedule 1 is overbroad because, again, at a minimum, it includes Salvinor and A., It seems like the BIA believes that that schedule is divisible, and if you can't show that your client distributed salvinorin A or perhaps another limited drug not contained in the CSA, you'll probably have some problems. But let's leave that for another day. And that is Matter of Dingus. Finally, we come to Rodriguez v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on April 19, 2022. Recognize this one? This is that monster-deficient NTA in absentia reopening decision discussed on episode 75 of the podcast. It's the case that really started everything regarding when, why, and how an in absentia removal order must be reopened when proceedings are initiated based on an NTA that does not comply with INA Section 239A the Niz Chavez issue that we're always talking about on the podcast. The fact that the Fifth Circuit was the original circuit to issue such a decision is huge, because I bet that the Fifth Circuit, along with its fellow border jurisdiction the Ninth Circuit, has far and away the most in absentia removal orders in its jurisdiction. And the Ninth Circuit has its own decision on the issue by the way, Sing V Garland, Episode ninety three. And it too is fabulous. With that background in mind, it's perhaps no surprise that a bunch of judges in the Fifth Circuit want to go and banc and vacate Rodriguez. But here, those judges did not succeed. That's what this decision is about. Well, really, it's mostly 14 pages from the four dissenting judges who want to overturn the panel decision in Rodriguez but five judges, authored by Judge Duncan, address those dissenting judges' points in five pages and explain why the original Rodriguez decision is correct and should not and will not be vacated. For example, the Fifth Circuit concurring judges explain how the rationale in Chavez would seem to apply to all statutes, like the in absentia reopening one here, that rely on the word notice to appear, or the statute INA section 239A. And indeed, here, quote, the in absentia provision doesn't merely demand notice or sufficient notice, but notice in accordance with INA section 239a, quote. Because it demands proper notice, a deficient NTA that does not comply with INA section 239a demands relief. In this case, reopening of an in absentia order of removal. Notices of hearing are irrelevant, because at least for the in absentia reopening statute, Notices of Hearing Only Matter, where there have been a change to the time and place of the initial hearing. But you can't have a change to the time and place of the initial hearing if the non-citizen quote, never got an initial time or place, end quote, in the NTA. Preach. Emphasis in the original. As to Matter of Lapara, the only contrary decision on this issue and from the BIA, that decision ignores end quote, flies in the face of the Supreme Court's Pereira decision, end quote. Put another way, as one might be apt to do in all circuits who have yet to address the issue, quote, LaPara mangles the plain text of INA Section 239A, the statutory structure, and common sense. No Chevron deference for LaPara, I truly enjoy this podcast sometimes. Nay, often. And that is Rodriguez V. Garland, the second. <laughs> so there you have it you're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases I'm Kevin A. Gregg a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt and this has been another episode of Immigration Review thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed it if you did please share it with a friend and rate and review us each review helps new listeners find the show And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgregg at kktplaw.com. with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.